Hello and welcome to Leadership Amplified. I'm Dr. Karen Woolley, your podcast host. Now, leadership is only valuable if it's a resource for the organisation, in my view. And it is a resource when teams and individuals benefit from being led. So this podcast is designed to inspire you to get more impact with your teams, with your leadership, to promote inclusion and to show you how to make leadership more satisfying. I'm doing that through a series of conversations with wonderful guests like today's Irma Ranieri. Irma has been the Commissioner for Public Sector Employment in South Australia since 2014. She is passionate about creating a world-leading public sector that serves South Australia well, that does what it says it will do, and to which every public servant is proud to belong. Irma leads sector-wide reform to modernise the public sector and continue to build on its value and service to the community. She's worked for more than 30 years to help organisations optimise productivity and employee wellbeing. In 2014, she was named a Telstra Businesswoman of the Year for her role in leading transformational change throughout the public sector. With a key focus on diversity and gender equality in leadership, Irma continues to challenge cultural and structural barriers to drive innovative, collaborative and connected services for the community. Such important work. Irma and I worked together more years ago than we care to admit, and it is an enormous pleasure to reconnect with Irma today. Fantastic to be um, talking with you again today. Um, so Commissioner for Public Employment, that's an interesting role. So it'd be great just to start off the conversation with a little bit about you and about this important role that you play. Okay, um, there's two, two sides to the role, I guess. One is it, the statutory role and what does that mean? Um, everyone in government, I think about 108,000 in the South Australian government is employed under an act. Um, now, not all of those are under the Public Sector Act, but there are a lot under the Police Act, um, Health Act, doctors, nurses, teachers. The Act actually talks about, I guess, principles by which people are employed, um, which includes ethics and other things. The Commissioner, in a, in a sense, is the, is the kind of caretaker of those principles across the sector. So, um, in a private sector firm, you could probably say that this is the, the head of the people and culture. Um, and making sure that we have consistent um, principles and guidelines around how we behave as what as as a a model employer. Um, the other bit of the role that I believe is important is not only do you have to articulate, I guess, what some of those rules are. The second bit is it's how do you develop or how do you get people to understand what their obligations are, um, what makes great leaders and what do we do to develop those leaders. Um, I know we're going to touch on this, but, you know, what does it mean to be a, um, a, 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 a community or a workforce that reflects the diversity of the community mm -hmm. that we serve? Um, so for me, on top of all of that, it's to make sure we have all the right sort of programs in place that will make people the best that they can be as we articulate those principles in that act. So that's mm -hmm. sort of the simplified version, I think, of what my role is. And what makes you suited to this or what makes you um, excited to have this mm. role? You've had, you know, an extensive senior career in the public sector. Um, is, is this the sort of 
the ultimate role for someone like yourself? Yeah. Well, yeah, I always thought it was. And back in the day when we were working together, Karen, (laughs) um, one thing that I always thought about was I'd really love um, to be the Commissioner for Public Sector Employment. And and like with anything, you often see people doing it very badly. So (laughs) it wasn't as if... No, um, yeah, (laughs) No, not at all. Um, But uh, I always felt that this was the... Because my background is in... Um, people and culture and I studied in the area of industrial relations and the rest of it I have an interest in people how they behave and in particular how we interact at a sort of more kind of holistic level and I always looked at the role and and thought well that would be absolutely perfect for someone like myself and this was a long time ago um, and never ever thought that I would actually have this role so it actually fits my purpose really quite Mm, clearly mm. um, to to work on programs like leadership development, to work on performance management, but most importantly, to represent, I guess, a woman that's come from a non-English speaking background in what is one of the most senior roles in government. And uh, back in the day, we didn't have too many women in those senior roles. Certainly when I was getting, when I was, when I was first appointed, we only had around 38% representation of women in executive roles we're going up to about 52% now. So I I think that on top of being driven and purposeful around it, people like that then tend to make a difference. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Um, And I'm trying to reflect back on the time that I was involved at the Commissioner for Public Employment in a former um, era. And that's even, did you say 38%? That's a staggering increase in executives because I reckon in uh, the chief executive cohort, uh, there were only a few and in the, mm. the SES level service, um, pretty, we weren't at 25%. No. Um, so um, significant yeah. change over that time. It has fantastic. been. So 38% um, probably in the first year and... Um, uh, and we can talk about this, a focus on um, what we called our gender equality strategy. Mm. Um, and then uh, up to, uh, we're certainly over 50% and I think we're crawling to 53% now. Um, mm. And uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of the quiet achievement, but I, I do think it makes a big difference when, that, when people can see role models of women that perhaps don't come from that stereotypical you know, white, you know, it's not white males leading it. And that's, that was my point, I think, about commissioners in the past. I think there were very few women that were in those roles, very few women, as you said, in senior roles. Um, mm. And uh, I think we've had an opportunity to demonstrate that, you know, you can do it and you can do it if you're juggling work and family and other things. And that's certainly been my experience, my personal yeah. experience. Yeah. Well done and congratulations. It's fantastic. Thanks, Karen. The job. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm. Um, so let's talk about the the gender equality strategy a little and that um, the the changes in representation of women in the senior executive ranks. Um, you're in such a great position to challenge the, the barriers to gender equality. So can you share some of what you've done and, and I guess your wisdom in how to approach shifting gender balance and gender equity when you're looking at the senior levels of organisations? I actually, yeah, I actually think you need to put a lens on it. And um, and we've had debates around whether we set targets and the rest of it. I know the mm. previous government had a 50% um, uh, 
women in executive target. And I think that always helps you focus. Now, I, I'm not, not necessarily interested in debating whether that works or not, but knowing that you're tracking the numbers of women is actually very important. Yeah. There's the area, so what we, what we did is, and you need senior executive um, commitment and, and right from the Premier commitment. So I remember that we did get the previous Premier to basically um, launch the strategy um, and in developing the strategy, we engaged with leaders across the sector, uh, men and women. So you actually have to have a plan. We actually had a focus and the target was there. I think they were soft targets, but nonetheless, they were there. Then we started to unpack, I guess, what is stopping people from going into those roles? Mm. And, you know, I know you've probably written about a lot of these and experienced it. The unconscious bias, the way we describe jobs, the paradigm within which we've structured jobs, the added role of women in juggling work and life and, you know, the way that jobs are structured, it's mm. it's not conducive to that, um, that women probably who have other responsibilities don't want to play those small p politics um, and uh, the energy that it actually takes may not even understand them. Um, understanding, I guess, other pressures like domestic violence and other things, unequal pay. And we addressed quite a few of those. For instance, one thing that we did very quickly and we knew we could was uh, when women were on maternity leave, mm -hmm. their super contributions would stop. Um, so we immediately stop that they basically contributed the contribution from the employer just continued um gender pay for instance uh pay gaps what we said was for like for like why you know we did a study why are women getting paid less and we ended up you know some ce's uh, all signed up to the gender equality strategy we put a lens on it and then we put it into their performance agreements so yeah. there was this bit of competition around it as well but the yeah. unconscious bias for me sits right at the top it's how we describe mm. jobs how we see ourselves and if mostly males are in those roles seeing a, a successful role model uh, woman that doesn't look the same does bring in that bias and that was it was quite obvious so all of those little things helped contribute to build a a small group that then actually grew to a bigger group and mentoring programs than the rest of us so it's not one thing it was yeah. many things and a lens for four years yeah yeah that's fantastic and I've, of course i've got to take the bait um and ask you more about unconscious bias because you do know that is a particular interest in mine and uh, mainly because i see that many people hold even myself i mean i've got unconscious biases about women and so it's really that opportunity to open up people's understanding and awareness of what happens uh, and then help to motivate people so that our beliefs, conscious and unconscious beliefs, are a bit better aligned and we're making decisions as we think we are. Um, but I think one of the challenges that we're facing now in the whole notion and way of thinking about unconscious bias is that um, there's, there's a bit of a backlash against it. There's a bit of a backlash against um, unconscious bias training. You know, it doesn't work. So I'm really keen to understand I mean, not necessarily have that debate with you, but to understand how you tackled unconscious bias um, from a cultural and structural point of view. What were the, because you have so many levers to play mm. with as the commissioner, and once you've mm. got your, your CEOs mm. on side, what was, what were some of the key things you did around uh, to tackle that unconscious bias? I think the, 
there's a, lots of lots of things. I think I, yeah. I started to mention a few of them. Mm. One is that I can actually start to unpack what recruitment and selection looks like for people. So yeah. unconscious bias, it, right from the beginning of describing a job and describing how a job is done and when it's done and how many days it needs to be done um, and the qualification it needs and the skills that it needs. So mm. I can actually challenge on competencies or capabilities and why we describe some of those things because immediately it excludes probably 50% of the population because you might need a financial qualification or presenteeism is really mm. important. And when a woman takes a career break, she's not around, so she probably isn't as experienced according to whoever's assessing it as someone else. So it's actually challenging. I can make some changes or start to educate around recruitment, selection, um, describing positions, carving up jobs in a particular way. So they're the levers yeah. that, that I guess I and many others can, can actually have. And we, we did do that. I mentioned um, the other things around uh, superannuation um, mm. and women believing in that they can actually go for some of these senior roles. I was the first job share at an executive level in government never done mm. before so all you need is people to kind of show that it's done now we've got heaps of it happening so then you've got more women saying well I'll do that because I can reconcile uh, so it's, it's it's showing that it's actually possible it's possible to, to do that in a particular way demonstrate it the great thing about being commissioner and being a woman and having raised children and having job shared is, is people kind of think, oh, we've got permission to do this. Mm. She did it. Mm -hmm. And mm. if, if, if my manager said I couldn't, I'll, I'll go and, you know, complain about it or they've raised the profile on the gender equality, I think we have permission. So it's actually mm. empowering people to ask mm. those questions as well, which you, we, you'd know about. So we did do the training, by the way, and everyone it was it was great because a lot of the leaders and at point in, point in time we couldn't do it now but we are actually embedding a lot of this in some of the authentic leadership adaptive yeah, leadership great. it's mm -hmm. a leader's job to it question is. themselves and their values so yeah. we're not doing unconscious by bias the sort of yeah. training but what we are doing is embedding in our leadership programs and saying to be a, le a leader at this level you need to actually understand yourself and what yeah. actually um, you know, how you present yourself to a circumstance. So mm. if you go, well, now nah, she's part-time and or what can I get out of this person or what are the good qualities? So it's about the individual. Um, mm. So we kind of do it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. But that, I mean, that's more realistic, isn't it? Because you can't necessarily yeah. change unconscious bias itself. No. Um, but once people know about it, it's then what are the tools that we have so that we can make the decisions better. One of the things that always interests me in particularly senior executive recruitment, and when I was in the uh, public um, uh, Commissioner for Public Employment's office, I sat on a lot of executive selection panels. Yep. Um, and I recall feeling incredibly frustrated many times um, when I heard the conversation about how we think about the different candidates. Um, yes. And it was often, you know, somebody I knew, you could be sure about them, um, compared with someone they didn't know, someone who looked like me versus someone who was a bit different from a different culture or, you know, gender background. Um, and so one of the, the, the challenges is with senior people making recru recruitment decisions for people reporting to them is, I want people to look like me. 
Yes. How does, how does that sort of play out? So it sounds like there's a lot of really great structural things in play and you've got women seeing that there are many more possibilities now for what they can ask for, what they can expect. What about how, you know, what about the real, you know, on the ground, in the moment challenge to some of yep. those executives about how they're making their decisions? I'm realistic to say that we haven't cracked that walnut yet. Um, no, I still think and this is what the conversation's well, about. Emma, yeah. the answer. But let me let me let me give you, I guess, my personal experience in on my yeah. first panel uh, when I became commissioner, um, and it's exactly how you described it. Is that I, I'm thinking? Well, I'm now the chair of this. I kind of wasn't, um, and. Uh, what I did do, so there's a couple of things that we can do, and that is bring women to the table and apply. So if you're mm -hmm. using a recruiter or if you're doing it yourself, and I know this with the previous um, strategy that we had, is that we made a commitment that we would bring every woman that we believed that was in the executive ranks or potentially in that feeder group, we would actually uh, go and approach them to apply for mm -hmm. a job that yeah. might, so, so that, that actually happened. But it kind of backfired me, backfired on me in my first experience. I got, mm. I think I got about 10 women to apply and it was just amazing. I thought, God, we're going to get, we're going to nail this. And I got to the, I got to the interview and uh, I, I was the chair and the rest of it. There were all, all the others were men. I, I was that token woman on that panel feeling like I was the one in control and at best I can describe I was buying the lunch for everyone as commissioner. That's how it that's how it panned out. And I brought the all these women to the work. table. Exactly. I bought the women to and I saw exactly what you just described. And that mm. is season like I saw men that performed mediocre. It was mediocre. Women bright as, you know, examples you know they'd prepped and the rest of it. And there was some anecdotal information about why they wouldn't do it or what they'd heard about them. And yet the mediocre male was steady, could do it and the rest of it. I must say I probably didn't perform my best then because I was in shock because it was yes. my early days. What I'm really proud of in that process is I stopped it. I basically said, I don't think this worked. And I raised that with the premier at the time and mm you know, we did something else. And I think wow. that the, the key here is that I would never allow that to happen again. And I think sometimes it's those experiences and when you are in positions like this or anyone else, you've got to speak up and you've mm. got to say, I'm not supporting this. I am not mm. going to support it. I couldn't do it then and there, but I did it after yeah, um, because so it was safer for me to do after. But you yeah. can't allow that because... Yeah, and then you've got to watch yourself because now four or five years into it, you kind of go, oh, no, I really need someone full-time or someone's talking about balancing, you know, kids and stuff. Oh, no. And I'm thinking that's what I would have been asking. So I've experienced it. So I, mm. I'm much better at understanding where people are coming from. And even if you're not, always put yourself in their shoes. That's the leadership development bit. So you need a good experience that knocks your head around a bit around this stuff yeah. and yeah. then you will make sure that you'll never do it. Yeah, but I think that's the real key because we do have all sorts of experiences and often in the moment we recognise them and then we don't feel powerful enough to do something or we don't really know how to have that conversation that, that's challenging mm -hmm. others. And I think we just have to accept 
don't you? That that, that happens and then do what yes, you does. did, which was what do I learn from that and what do I do mm. differently? Mm. And you, mm. you kind of mm. go back and gather your strengths and think about mm. what you're going to do. Go to the premiere if you happen to be able to do that. And then, yeah. then hey, yeah. you just improve next time around. So it's we just did. about... We did learning little and changing bits. yeah um and making those and improvements as you go yep and talking about it so yeah. you know yeah. I, you know i've talked about it and i've you know mm. and it's embarrassing for some and um we've had panel sessions we've had men on those panels we've had women i mean let's be clear i mean we're looking for gender equality but sometimes it's women themselves that that are the ones we need to challenge it's yeah. not all men some of my best mm. leaders, my best mentors and coaches were certainly men that mm. supported me through all this. So mm -hmm. I just think it's a, it's something we all should be very conscious of. And, uh, and you know, half the population are women and they need to be in policy decision-making roles if we're going to actually change the world and be inclusive around mm. what, what we're all thinking, basically. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just a fundamental, you know, change that was required and we got there. But it was yeah. all those little things that actually got yeah. us. But it takes a long time. Well, also it takes, I mean, what, what I'm hearing you say is your awareness of all of the little things and, and your background and experience in people and culture actually paid a huge dividend to you in the role and in that ability, not yep. just your experiences yep. as, as a woman and a, as a mother, but that all came together in a really nice package for you to, to make some significant change. So. Congratulations. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, th I do think yeah. if, you, if you are a commissioner, you do need to understand, I guess, how people operate and the dynamics or have some really great people that you, that you have in your team, like mm. you were when you were there. But I think a commissioner has to have a level of understanding about how it shifts its workforce to, to I guess, respond to uh, what's happening in the world because we do deliver services to the community um, and the most vulnerable. And COVID's really proven, I guess, how important that has been. Yeah. So let's actually segue into sort of COVID um, and the impact on, you know, families, women in particular, and women's uh, leadership as a consequence of the, the change in working relation or working arrangements, I should say, so that we were seeing much more remote work. Um, I'm in Victoria, so I probably have a particularly jaded view about that right now. Mm -hmm. But, um, <laughs> you know, we've, we've actually realised that you can work flexibly, you can work from home, you can be much more dynamic around those arrangements. And so there are upsides, but maybe there are downsides if women are looking after schooling and, you know, take on the office home uh, housework and the work housework. So how are you seeing it? play out um, in terms of the of, yeah. women. I think it's quite significant I'll, I'll use some personal stories firstly um, in terms of the public sector and the workforce um, South Australia has done an exceptional job um, actually decanting the public service out and working from home bearing in mind 76,000 of our workers are frontline workers so there's yeah. doctors teachers nurses they mm -hmm. all had to do things differently but that proportion of workers that were our back office um, half of them 50% of those were went, went working from home it actually worked seamlessly now one mm -hmm. of the things and you know we've all contributed to this is that South Australia has progressed a lot on its flex flexible work arrangements I mean, we've been modelling, you know, job sharing, working from home. We've had we had all the right tools. 
in terms of how you did this. What I loved about the COVID uh, platform is that we actually had to accelerate it. And we did it within 48 hours without a hitch, basically. People what? were home. They took, yep, very few. I haven't heard a lot, apart from a few departments where their leaders didn't believe that people should work from home, right. where they weren't socially distancing. You know, the, it, was, it was what I would call leadership uh, where presenteeism was actually rewarded. And I think the leaders found it very difficult to cope with no one in the office. Yes. So I remember <laughs> I, I kept coming in and I have the whole time and I'd sit in, a, in an empty office. But I was here and I had grown in resilience because I've gone through a lot and I was deploying the workforce. I'm mobilisation coordinator for the for the South Australian government. So I move public servants around where they need to go. So the the fact that we did it, and we were able to mobilise was fantastic. In terms of women, my personal experience is that I have an ageing mother. I have, I'm a guardian to my two adult cousins who are intellectually disabled. And at the same time when COVID hit, I need to get my uncle who's got dementia into a nursing home. And I come from a non-European background. So the burden is on me to help. I found it very overwhelming the responsibilities, the uncertainty, and basically I was providing that certainty to family and then the public service. Yeah. Um, and then I heard of experiences here at, with uh, women with younger children in the office that they mm -hmm. were left to do the home schooling or they needed to work out the juggling or they're telling me that this is good because it's been positive because they can work, go pick them up and come home. Um, mm. that we set parameters around them not doing childcare, they, but childcare is closed. So then mm. I offered a whole range of leave options. So we tried to make it as flexible as possible so people could reconcile work and life. I have no doubt this is going to have a major impact on mm. the workload of women and the future of especially casual workers and women that worked in hospitality. I mean, you'd know that more here my concern is that I, I look around and I include myself in this the women look the most tired it looks mm. like we're quite fatigued around mm. because it's not just the physical stuff I have found that I've done a lot more nurturing it's yeah. a lot more oh tell us it's okay and I do this at the you know and and uh, and I feel better so you know, you're feeling really stressed about, you know, what's happening, uncertainty, will we all die? What does it mean in the beginning? Mm -hmm. And you have to send the message, it's all cool. We've got this under control. And I think women do that better and it relies on them doing it with their family and, and at the workplace. Mm -hmm. I just felt like we were doing a lot of that nurturing. Yeah, yeah. One of the stories that um, I've heard a bit of, I don't think it's, that widespread but it's it's concerning is that because of the increased burden that women were facing um one of the things that uh, some women were doing was um opting to reduce their working hours yes. so in order to cope with the increased pressure and demands of all of that everything the whole life thing mm. Um, they're actually reducing their hours, which means, of course, that it reduces, we know, it shouldn't, but it does tend to reduce mm -hmm. career prospects and opportunities. Let's mm. say we get to a post-COVID era. Um, mm. What, I mean, what would your advice be um, about how a system <clears throat> could deal with that? Well, we didn't notice it in the public service, but I think we're unique. Mm. No one's really lost their jobs. If you had a job, 
uh, you had the flexibility to kind of work from home. I've seen a drop in the in the part time, so we it's stayed the same or slightly dropped. So we haven't seen that pattern, but we mm. are unique because people have jobs, and um, I was uh, I've got sort of COVID workforce considerations, uh, a toolkit for managers and how you manage people remotely. So we've supported them online. Everything went mm -hmm. virtual online. So I think uh, we've been okay around that. My advice to women, I guess, if they're thinking of that, if they have an employer like the government or the rest of it, not to do it, to try and mm. go back and negotiate how they can reconcile. I think the other thing is that we have not really sat down and looked at how people are working at home. And I've had to send some really mm. strong messages to people that your weekend is your weekend, that you have to clock off, you have to clock in, because what's happening is it's becoming the same day. And this is where mental health starts to be a real issue. So people might be thinking, I've got to stop this because I can't switch off from work because your work and home has become the same place. So we've set some things in place to kind of stop it, start it, have thing, other things that you're doing, but you can't because, you know, mm. you're either isolated like you guys are or during the period you couldn't do much. So, mm. in fact, you, you went online and went on the Teams meeting and the rest of it. So um, I think that I think people need to kind of go back to thinking about what makes them sort of a whole person and what do they need to do to manage work and life, but now in a completely different paradigm. Um, in, in the luxury of their own home where you can put the roast on and then you can go back and do your work and then nine o'clock's come and you're still working uh, but, you're, but you're home and you're able to put the washing on and the rest of it. There's the extra work. You're just mm -hmm. continuously doing that where you, you don't have the stop and start and the, and the different environment to say, I'm now stopping this and now I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there's... Uh, it's almost thrown it all up in the air and it's time to reconsider the whole lot, which is what yeah. we're kind of looking at now. Yeah. Also that, that interests me. What, what do you see for the next six, 12 months to for the next couple of years in terms of the opportunities around remote and flexible work? I think it's um, the thing that I've loved about this is that we, we will never go back to how we did it, I don't believe. Um, right now in South Australia, we're bringing them all back, but bringing them all back, we've forgotten what it was like before. So bringing them back, uh, well, well, and you guys will forget even more probably. Um, so what the bringing them back is, and I've talked to a lot of senior leaders that would never have supported this, a full-timer, we're kind of going, is it okay for three days in the office and two working from home? That's massive. Yeah. So if yeah. we can do that, so that's kind of the the principle I've got. If you're full-time, three days in the office seems fine. Collaboration, workout, we'll never go back to not having Teams meetings or Zoom because they're so efficient um, mm. and work out why you need to get together and make it really mm. worthwhile. So I this is this is the reform. You know, if I end my career with this reform, it's been massive. And we'll never go back to people being in the office the whole week, except for people like myself. But I would really like to have, um, I felt like I was holding it up. I think over time I'll do the same uh, yeah. when I don't feel that we're in a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I used to work part-time anyway. So I've done it before. 
it's not as if I'm a workaholic. It's just I felt like I had to hold it together and I needed mm. the stop and start to know what – I felt like I was sort of – I could be better in control sitting here in case anyone needed me, including yeah. the Premier and other people. So it was because of the time. But over time, if we've got a new normal, um, then I will do the same. Mm. Great. Well, I hope you do. And I guess I that when, you're not no. in, yeah, when you're not in crisis, um, you can be a bit further away from important decision makers and from the other senior leaders who are around yes. at the time. But yeah, 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 it makes sense that you might want to get get together and actually be allowed to do it. Yes. Oh, that's something to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) It is. So um, one of the things I'm also interested in hearing from you about is that you mentioned the number of uh, public service people who are frontline workers. Mm. Um, And there are a number of sectors that have borne the brunt, if you like, of that um, frontline service to the public during this time, um, essential service workers. Um, and I'm interested in, in your thoughts around the particular challenges that they've faced and how as a system have you been able to support them while they respond in their mm-hmm. service delivery to all the anxieties and expectations that the public has? Yeah. Well, the very first thing, of course, I mean, it's not just health, but for them, really important to have the PPE. I mean, it's so important Mm -hmm. to have the right equipment to kind of um, protect yourself from um, basically being harmed. Um, That includes police and others. The other thing is to actually um, be clear that we're supporting them. And uh, so the workforce considerations, things that I've done is Mm -hmm. um, if... uh, you know, if they've, so some have come to volunteer in Victoria, uh, we pay them when they come and um, isolate here. We uh, created a COVID leave. We were the first to create the COVID leave for 15 days if you're waiting for a test and the rest of it. So don't compromise on any of their conditions because they're doing this, and they're the ones that mostly are exposed to this. So we did that bit. We've also created, um, uh, so for instance, um, Health workers or all frontline workers were given sort of unlimited access to EAP. So, you know, that three or four, um, we went immediately to to get approval to give them, you know, up to five or six sessions EAP. And we actually trained another thousand, I think it was, or hundred, maybe not a thousand, extra peer support officers for frontline workers. So our focus was very much on their mental health and Mm -hmm. fatigue and whatever, you know, was happening in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, They had to be at work and the risks and the rest of it. So we've actually wrapped a whole lot of services around them. And it seems to have been, it seems to have been accessed and it seems to have been well received. Um, So they're the kind of things that we've done. They they have not been compromised in any way uh, in the things that we could do for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that support, mental health, making sure that, you know, we have enough workers so we've got the mobilisation, moving people around so they don't get fatigued and then basically giving them the time off and rewarding them for the work that they're actually doing. So recognition um, and the Premier thanking them and the rest of it. So it's been a well-oiled machine here with our state coordinator and we seem to be working quite well in harmony together. Mm. So Mm. I've mobilised some people to help health at the moment in their command centre. 
and uh, you know job groups and what we need like contact tracers and the rest of it so we, we've planned really well we haven't quite had the numbers that you guys have had but we're ready if it happens basically yeah yeah uh, and hopefully can learn from us um you know what we <laughs> what have didn't, didn't and work, i think you yeah. always need someone to learn from um <laughs> and uh we, we have, and I think that's the, the, the beauty of even being from overseas, but the beauty is that you can actually look at your, your neighbours and say, look, um, you know, it could have happened to any one of us, really. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's just learning from that and learning mm. that induction is important, learning that people need to be aware of what they're doing. If you're mobilising them somewhere, learning that they need to have the skills to do it um, and using people on the front line to train up others. We've learnt all of that. So mm. it's, it's actually, we are ready if it happens. Hopefully it doesn't. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, so what does the future hold for Irma Ranieri and her career? <laughs> you know, it's funny you should ask because I think what COVID has done for all of us is actually say life is too short for us to be wasting it on things that you don't <laughs> enjoy. So I've just said I really enjoy this job and I'm enjoying it yeah. probably because I know the public sector so well and COVID has given me, I felt like it's a steady hand that actually knows the South Australian government. Mm. But like everyone else, I have a whole lot of other responsibilities outside um, of work. And I'm actually really excited about potentially the future. I've got a bit mm. of an interest in maybe some property development. I just don't know why. Mm. I like looking at um, property and other things. I don't, maybe because it's completely different. Um, I think I'd like to help others, um, in particular senior leaders in the future, and, and be that coach or mentor. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been doing that, you know, uh, yeah. on the side. Yeah, That's something that that yeah. I, I wouldn't mind um, continuing to do. But but I think uh, I'd love to see this government through. It's been a great journey with them. But then beyond that, I think I'm looking at what whatever phase two looks like. Mm -hmm. I don't like using retirement word at all. I think mm -hmm. that we should keep active and do things that you really mm -hmm. enjoy. So I've got a, a strong purpose around helping sort of the vulnerable interest in uh, disability of course so I might you know pop up somewhere where I can help those that are on NDIS or needing some sort of support that's that's where my next mm. kind of interest lies mm, yeah it's been fabulous speaking with you today I mean it takes me back to South Australia and earlier times in my career and also the times when we work together I'm just thinking as we finish up the conversation boy I wished I worked for you as the commissioner you know, uh, you well, you know what? You wouldn't have made a bad commissioner yourself, Karen. So I think you actually left too soon. But uh, you know what? I had a dream when I was quite young and uh, that dream was to have this role. Not everyone gets oh. this, but I have to say, when you say, is this it? This is the job. This is the job for mm -hmm. me. And I think in a lifetime, if we find the thing that you believe you're, you're best at, then I think you've made it. So you're I'm, pre really I'm pretty well. satisfied. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes next is going to be great. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Well, on that note, what better Thanks, note Karen. can we have yes. uh, to finish up the conversation? Irma, thank you so much for being involved today and thank you so much for your great wisdom um, in these areas that are so important to you, me and to all organisations, I think. And thank you, listeners, for listening into the podcast.